to Inside and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Today, with extreme gratitude and happiness, allow me to present Dr. Gay Hendricks. Dr. Gay has served for more than 30 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapist, as a scientist, best-selling author, executive coach, and entrepreneur. He has written numerous books, of which I read many, including Conscious Loving, At the Speed of Life, The Big Leap, Five Wishes, and others. Dr. Hendricks received his PhD in counseling psychology from Stanford in 1974 and served a 21-year career as a professor at the University of Colorado. He is a founder of the Hendricks Institute and a co-founder of Foundation for Conscious Living. Throughout his career, he has done executive coaching with more than 800 executives, including the top management at such firms as Dell Computer, Motorola, and KLM. In recent years, he has co-created a popular podcast called The Big Leap with Gay Hendricks and Mike Connings. He has appeared on more than 500 radio and television shows, including Oprah, CNN, CNBC, 48 Hours, and others. Dr. Gay, it is such an honor for me to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you uh, for what you're doing and uh, for having the good taste to read some of my books, Natalia. <laughs> That's Thank you. Um, it's true. I'm a huge fan of your books and um, I've read many and many of them we will touch on today. But I guess the reason why I like them so much is that you emphasize a lot the role of intention in creating the life of your dreams and also the role of intuition to implement this intention. And to me, is quite different from hard science books out there. So I wonder how come that you are scientist by training uh, get to talk so much about the importance of mindful intention and intuition? Great question. Well, as you say, I was originally trained as a research psychologist at Stanford. We also did, um, we were trained in the clinical side of things too. So um, my PhD included a lot of scientific statistical kind of work, uh, but also a full counseling practice too. So we were encouraged there to work with real live people all the time, not just with the uh, scientific side of things. Well, to be honest, I think it originally came from things I found that worked in my own life that I got some of which from some from other psychologists or some from um spiritual books I read. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. I think there's a tremendous crossover between spirituality and psychology. And I think there's also a big crossover between both of those things and a scientific approach. You know, a scientific mm -hmm. approach is nothing more than you take an idea and you work with that idea and look at the results it produces and you keep modifying it. And if it works, great. You know, that's how a yeah. lot of, I mean, who would have known a few hundred years ago that inside the bark of a tree was aspirin, things that would make headaches go away. But uh, yeah. people noticed, uh, very clever people noticed way back 
that bears would go gnaw on the bark of a certain tree if they seemed to be in pain. And so mm -hmm. gradually we learn from folk wisdom and what people are doing. And I think that if you really look at the whole thing with an open heart, there's not much value in carving up what's spiritual or what's psychological or what's practical. What I try mm -hmm. to do in all my books is put the things that I have personally seen to be most effective. Some of those things are really supported by scientific research, but you have to realize too that sometimes scientific research is a good 10 or 20 years behind yeah. what's actually being done in the world. Because by the time, you know, like a friend of mine was trying to get a, a, a drug approved for a new treatment for migraines. And he literally spent years and years and millions of dollars trying to get that through the whole system. Well, if you're sitting there in an office working with somebody with real live pain, maybe a couple that's fighting or somebody that's having PTSD or something, you don't really have time to go back and do all this, uh, you know, the research on yeah. it. You have to find yeah. things that work. So like, for example, one of my main principles is that if you've got something that hurts, like rejection, and I'm not talking about a broken leg, which I happen to have back in March. <laughs> you know, like if a person comes in and says, I'm depressed, it's usually not something that just happened that morning or happened yesterday. Maybe there was a trigger for it, but there's something that's been down in the system for sometimes decades. Yep. And so one of the first principles that I started working with and I don't know if you'd call this psychology or spirituality or what, but I found in my own life that if instead of just glancing, glossing over my pain, if I spent some time actually feeling it, mm. exploring it, where does it show up in my body? How does it make the rest of my body feel? Mm -hmm. Is my sadness connected to my anger or my fear? The other primal feelings that humans have. Yeah. One of the others, anyway. And I don't know where you find that in a spirituality or psychology book, but you have to, if you try it, you realize it makes a tremendous difference because if you're the kind of person that just glosses over emotions that you're feeling, that dooms your relationships. You don't get to have really rich relationships. And I know because I came from a place of being totally ignorant of my own emotions in the early half of my life, or maybe up until I was in my 20s. I couldn't have told you if I was scared or angry or sad or excited. I would have just said, I'm okay, yeah. or I'm fine, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm fine is one of those two word things that are a giant red flag that you're not fine. Yeah. You know, that, that there's stuff in there that needs attention that you're choosing unconsciously not to give attention to. So anyway, I started developing a whole system around helping people feel things in their bodies. Mm -hmm. And now you can probably find tons of yeah. studies about that. But back 30 or 40 years ago, when I first started, it was all just stuff that found I found to be practical mm -hmm. in my office there. Same thing with 
in my book, I call it uh, making completions. Let's say I'm angry at you for something that happened three days ago. Let's say we worked together and I got mad at something you said, but I didn't say anything about it for three days. Well, naturally, our relationship is going to change because I'm now systematically excluding one part of me from our relationship. And naturally, it's going to seem flat and not quite right. We've all been there. I know I spent a lot of time there in the first bunch of years of my life. As a matter of fact, I remember the first moment I worked up the courage to actually say something authentic about my feelings to a, a girlfriend of mine back in my late 20s. She she would always ask me, you know, how do you feel about that? Or what are you feeling right now? And I would always turn it aside or make a joke about, oh, you don't want to know yep. what I'm feeling. You know, but what a stupid, Way astonishingly obtuse thing to do, yeah. you know, to completely, because like just physiologically, the human brain is about the size of a grapefruit mm-hmm. and they weigh about three and a half pounds. Well, the part of us that deals with language and logic is only a tiny little piece of that. Like if you look at a grapefruit, the rind and the juicy part and the seed in the middle, our brain is works the same way. There's an outer part, which we call the cortex, which has mm-hmm. all our languaging and things like that. But the juicy part of the grapefruit is all the limbic system. It's our emotions. Yeah. It's how we feel about things and the attitude we take toward things. And that juicy part of the grapefruit is where I started to focus my time. Now, there are lots of approaches to therapy that only deal with the cortex. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy. They don't deal a lot with the juicy part of the grapefruit. That's their system. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it works in many cases for, for many people. However, I realized that I didn't feel whole in my life until I was conversant and could talk about things I was scared about, things I was angry about, things I was sad about, things I was excited about, that all of that is the juicy part of what makes our lives good and our relationships good. My wife now, Katie, we've been together 44 years now. Wow. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, longer than you've been on the planet, I'm sure. Uh, So, um, But one of the great advantages of a long-term relationship is you get to see lots of what works and what doesn't work, you know? And so the first couple of years of our relationship, I was often so caught up in needing to be right that I couldn't really hear what she was saying. And, oh, it's so exquisite. The first day I said something to her like, I'm scared right now. I don't know what to do. You know, we've been in this argument for an hour, and I don't know how to get out of it. Well, that's just pure, authentic truth. And once I began to learn to talk like that and be like that, I found that we we cleared up arguments quick. You know, and especially there are magic words in a relationship to solve arguments. And one of them is to simply 
say a two word version of what you're feeling. Like, I'm scared. Or I'm sad. Yeah. I'm scared and I don't know why I'm scared. That kind of authentic, what we call here microscopic truth. You have to kind of look down into the microscope sometimes to find it. But once you can find that and deliver it to the other person, everything changes. I've seen it in my office. I don't know how many hundreds or probably thousands of times now where people will be really stuck in an argument. And then I'll invite them to tune into their bodies and tell me what they feel scared about. Wow. And some people just can't do it at first. Uh, what do you mean in my body? And I say, well, where are you feeling things right now? And they say, okay, I feel butterflies in my stomach. I said, okay, that's a sign of fear. So go down there and feel that fear and feel what you're really afraid of and tell your wife, I'm scared. Whoa. <laughs> Sometimes just those two words will set off a, a healing crescendo that is remarkable to see. And I've seen it, well, I particularly get to see it in workshops too, because we'll have, you know, 50 couples there and one couple up front will do that. And then two thirds of everybody else will be sobbing because they haven't had that experience yet, you know, yeah, in their relationship. Yeah. They will by the end of the workshop, but, you know, they realize what's missing at first is that authentic, deep contact with another person that, that all of us need every day. Wow, this is such a beautiful way to put it. I guess there are two challenges for people who have never done it. First is to recognize your feelings, like actually admit what it is that you're feeling. And second, to be vulnerable, to disclose those feelings to another person. So I guess that requires a lot of self-awareness and maturity. Well, it does. It does. Uh, but let me jump in and say mm -hmm. it's simple, you yeah. know, because... It's just a matter of training because everybody can answer the question, are you thirsty right now? Yeah. And maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but you know where to look for that feeling. Mm -hmm. Or if I say, um, is it too warm in this room right now? A person can say, no, I'm feeling good. Or, yeah, it is a little warm, but they know where to look. But if I say to a person, are you feeling scared right now? Sometimes people will say, how would I know? Yeah. You know, they just don't know where to look. But here are three places to look. Look in your belly for fear. Look in your chest for sadness. And look in the muscles around your neck and your jaws for your anger. Those huh. the places will light up when you have those feelings. And those are the three biggest feelings that cause stumbling blocks in relationship. So get really good at recognizing those and your relationships really start to flow. Interesting. I, I, I definitely knew about stomach for fear, but I didn't know about the other ones. Thank you. Thank you for the life hacks. I also liked how you said that the feelings are so important that, you know, those are the keys to our long-term fulfillment. And in one of your books, earlier books, actually, Learning to Love Yourself, you are uh, saying that resisting reality keeps life painful and complicated. And if we are willing to give our feelings space and love ourselves for feeling them, we experience reality and can begin to grow. This is a very 
beautiful way to put it and a good way to grasp this elusive concept of self-love because from my experience uh, working with my clients as well i often see that you know everyone pursues this goal of learning how to love yourself but no one knows where to start so your suggestion is to feel feelings first but then how does this flow to this continuous feeling of self-love it's a matter of practice. Um, mm-hmm. I say you make your great leaps forward 10 seconds at a time. Like with self-love, let's say you find yourself one day feeling depressed and sad. Well, that's the exact same thing that needs to be loved. So your body will always be calling you toward loving the thing that you find hardest to love. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Uh, I remember a very powerful executive woman was here one time, but she ran a big high-tech firm. So there was nothing wrong with her brain, for sure. But the problem was she had anger blow-ups. And then it would take sometimes two or three weeks for the people around her to get over that. Mm -hmm. And so in my first session with her, I invited her, instead of censoring her anger, to love it just like it is. And I remember her eyes just (laughs) pop wide like, what? What are you trying to suggest? And I said, you've tried everything else with your anger. You've tried pushing it out of your body. You've tried ignoring it. You've tried Mm -hmm. (laughs) everything. And it's still there. The only thing that's left is something that is unthinkable. And that is to love your anger as it is, and let's explore it together. And it was like watching a person, you know, like a cartoon moment of accepting reality. Her eyes were blinking and that kind of thing. And then she said the funniest thing. I'll never forget this. She said, you want me to love your my anger? And I said, that's exactly right. And she says, I don't think I can do that. Can I love something next to it and see if it'll bleed over on? <laughs> you know, it's like Elizabeth Kubler Ross's five stages of accepting death. That's the bargaining phase uh-huh. yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, all the phases are the same. You know, so if a person has reason to not love themselves, usually there's something that happened in their lives that made that true. You know, and it could be just the process of living in a family where there's a lot of negativity. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw a study many years ago where they took little voice-activated microphones and put them around the necks of kids who were in preschool and kindergarten, and they just recorded everything that was said to the child Mm -hmm. over the course of a week at home and at work. I mean, not at work, but in school. Mm -hmm. And so when they went through and analyzed all of the the spoken words, 85% of the messages the child was getting were negative in nature. Stop that. Don't do that. If you do that again, I'm going to, you know, all those kind of little things. But often in life, we need to let the yeses outnumber the noes and the do's outnumber the don'ts and the I cans outnumber the, oh, I can't. 
Yeah. You know, so in a way, that's what The Big Leap, my book, The Big Leap yep. and The Genius Zone and all of those books are about is about how to let yourself out of the prison of your old beliefs and just do something in this moment that will heal you. And so I'm happy to say that with my continuing uh, prodding, I guess, uh, the woman executive over the course of an hour got to where she could really open up and love her anger and ask the big question, where did you come from, anger? And what makes you so get so outraged? And so as we were mapping out that territory, you know, she realized in a way, like a lot of us realized, oh, my anger doesn't really have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. It's a response to something that happened a long time ago. And I'm still running that response over and over again. And it's just like I worked with a woman who was a sister in a convent. She'd been a nun all of her life. And she had cancer in a place where women don't usually get it unless they've had children and sex and things like that. And I didn't get to see her until she was probably in her 40s. And she tried everything else to make her cancer go away. The the thing was, though, that, you know, if if you're treating cancer just as a medical issue, you know, you're missing out on a lot of the potential learnings about it um, that um, that can really make the healing much faster. Well, even though she'd never had sex, as we were working together, she uncovered an actual sexual trauma that unconsciously, in a way, had taken her into the convent, even though it had happened many, many, many years before. But all decisions she made about my sexuality is not okay. My sexuality causes terrible things to happen out in the world, uh, causes people to be mean to me, old men to be mean to me. So she developed this stack of beliefs around something that she had completely forgotten about. And that's the nature of the unconscious. It wants to be outed, but it also has an investment in staying inside, too, because at least you've survived through it. But anyway, as she opened up and uh, let that out and let the feelings about it out, the cancer cleared up. And please don't go running out there and say Gay Hendricks said that you can clear up your cancer by just doing blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of times it's where I get hold of the problem is at the end of a long road of medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes to see me the first day they figure out they have cancer. And so I'm kind of the last uh, resort, last stopping place there. And I've seen it go the other way too. I've had people in here who had tumors that I said, you know, that's not a problem for here. That's a problem for a surgeon's scalpel. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to really take everybody as an individual. But what I'm really getting at is all of us need to get good at opening up and feeling what's inside ourselves and exploring that. Just like a good anthropologist going into a foreign country, you know, the learning the language of your feelings. That's an important thing. Anthropologists spend months learning the language of a new culture. And 
we have to do that with our bodies too. And, but we don't learn that usually in school. Exactly. It's, uh, it's not something I ever learned in school for sure. Yeah. So we develop it with experience and it's, uh, Beautiful, really beautifully put to approach your feelings and whatever happening inside of you with this mindset of curiosity. I guess some people might say that it is not that easy sometimes when all of the feelings are flooding into you. And then on top of that, we have so much comparison to whatever everyone else has. And we just find ourselves in this deep hole out of which it's difficult to get out. Like for instance, a friend of mine has an eating disorder and I used to have one myself in the past. So for me, it's from my personal experience, it's very familiar whole when you sit there and then you have anger and sadness and not enoughness and looking at people out there. And it's just all of this combination it, it it just it doesn't give you energy to be curious about yourself. The only thing that you kind of want to do is to do something habitual. How would you maybe address that and help people who are still struggling with something like that? Yes, well, old patterns are by their very nature very difficult to interrupt, but all it takes is one interruption of an old habit. Like a fellow I know, Ken Hecht, lost 120 pounds. And he said it really happened in one moment. He, it was, he was at the refrigerator and he was starting to open to get something out. It was late on a Saturday night. He felt lonely, you know, 120 pounds overweight. Where's he going to go? Yeah. You know, and, uh, in the middle of that though, before he, he ate the food, he stopped and thought, okay. Let me actually just feel this first. So rather than rushing in with the piece of meat or the sweet or whatever, instead he just stood there in front of the refrigerator and felt his fear and felt his loneliness and felt his old rage and felt his grief. And so he stood there for maybe 20 minutes just feeling all of his feelings. That broke the spell of the habit. And from then he went on to lose 120 pounds because he realized that he was feeding his fear with food. And you don't feed fear with food. You feed it with loving attention. That's what it's craving. That's what it's crying out for. So be very careful about eating when you're feeling lonely and scared because nature and its Crazy wisdom has installed our fear mechanisms and where you feel fear right next to our hunger mechanisms in yeah, our body. Exactly. So a lot of people cannot tell whether they're hungry or scared. Yeah. In fact, sometimes in our trainings, we spend an hour helping people learning how to do that. And it's incredibly useful too, because if you can get your emotions separated out from other things you do, you know, like, <laughs> God forbid that anybody does this, but one of our clients, when he came in, when he would get in a rage, like at work, he would go out after work and he owned this huge motorcycle, one of these, you know, big uh, Harley Davidsons or something that make the thunder sounds. Well, his way of getting rid of rage 
was to get out there and crank it up to a hundred miles an hour, you know, <laughs> and vibrate his whole body with it. Bad idea because dangerous. It's not appropriate to inflict your therapy process on the other drivers and pedestrians out there in the world. But uh, fortunately, he got a mild wake up call. He didn't wipe out, but he got a mild wake up call where he crashed his motorcycle into a ditch. And then he woke up and realized, oh, rage motorcycle, bad idea. Uh, when you're feeling in a rage, go ahead and vibrate with it. Tell people in your office, I'll be back in 10 seconds. I didn't just feel how pissed off I am right now. I had another executive down at Dell Computer. I used to do a lot of computing uh, consulting back there back in the 90s. And um, there was this one executive that would have anger blowups. And he had grown up in, I think, Brooklyn or the Bronx or someplace where people are, you know, much more willing to kind of get in your face with their anger. Mm -hmm. So it didn't bother him a bit to have his anger blow up, but he didn't realize that half the people in the room had grown up in places where people don't do that, you know, like in the Midwest where or Canada, where everybody tries to be polite and they're not used to people blowing up and then getting over it 10 seconds later. So I pointed out from looking at his body language that he was maybe angry, but what he really was, was sad and disappointed. Mm. And I said, try sharing that instead of the anger. And he said at first, oh, gosh, you're not supposed to share stuff like that in the workplace. And I said, well, why not? Because if you're having an anger blow up, some people, like if you go to a Zen monastery, they would say that's inappropriate in the workplace is blowing up and pounding on your desk. And so anyway, the the sweet, beautiful end of the story was this big, burly executive saying to his team, I felt sad and disappointed when I heard the report on X, Y, and Z. The week before, he heard the report and beat on the desk and scared the heck out of everybody. Well, everybody applauded his new way of dealing with it. I mean, it it made such a difference that uh, I, I can still see the tears in his eyes now uh, from seeing the magical effects of something so simple. So when you're upset, try the two-word solution. I'm angry. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I'm sad. You know, try a two-word solution and see if you can figure out. Because the fact is, in the human being, Feelings are layered up kind of like in a parfait. You know, there may be anger on the surface, but the person is also feeling sad and also feeling scared. And unless you get to those deeper feelings in conversation, you don't ever get to the place where you get any resolution. Yeah. So once you figure it out what you're feeling, you are supposed to explore them and try to love them as they are. Is that the idea? Love them as they are and also communicate them as clearly as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I'm trying to clear up an anger pattern, I might invite you to say to one of your friends or your partner or somebody, I'm working out a lot of old anger stuff right now. I'm trying to learn how to love and accept my anger. And I'm 
not very good at it yet. Uh, I'm not where I want to be with that. So anyway, but telling somebody the process you're in can be very helpful to you. It's yeah. not the overnight cure, but um, if anybody tries to sell you an overnight <laughs> cure, run the other direction. Especially if you see it on the internet that there's just one thing you can do to take away all your anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> one thing you can do to make all your stomach problems go away. Ah. <laughs> no, that's not the right thing. Well, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful advice. We also mentioned how to work with fears of, you know, something that is scarce or, or not enough in a way. But there is also a big part of fear that we often experience in our life that relates to success. And that's the idea that you explore in the big leap a lot. And uh, you call it the upper limit problem. And that's when we reach certain level in our life, but we do not allow ourselves to expand from that level because we're almost afraid of this uncomfortable new situation that we've never experienced before, of this success that we've never lived through before. So could you tell us more about this upper limit problem and how to tackle it? Yes. Well, I first discovered this in my, my own life way back in the 80s, where I realized that some of my biggest upsets or when something bad would happen would come right after I had a period of feeling really good. Yeah. And so I started noticing that. And I started calling it the upper limit problem because I identified three or four old limiting beliefs that were stuck in my mind. One of them was, uh, I don't really deserve to have the good things of life. Mm -hmm. Another one was, I'm afraid to really let my light shine in the world for fear that they'll call it stupid or crazy or something like that. And so as I began to realize that there were these beliefs that kept me trapped, and then when I would have a breakthrough, maybe I would make more money or have more fun or go for a long period of time in my relationship where things were going well, that would oftentimes cause me to pop off an upper limit thing, start an argument or stub my toe or, um, you know, uh, right after having a real sweet weekend to suddenly get in an argument on Sunday night. Mm -hmm. That's a common one. We've yeah. worked with, uh, I think, about 4,500 couples now. And one of the most common patterns is the Friday night fights or the Sunday night fight. The Friday fight happens on Friday night and then messes up your whole weekend. Yeah. And the Sunday night fight happens because you've had a great weekend and don't <laughs> think you deserve it. And so you blow it out of the water on Sunday night with a big argument. But as you go along, all those things clear up because you get better at handling the essential communications from down in here. So you don't let things go fester for three or four weeks until they mm -hmm. have kind of a blow up. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. I can definitely say that sometimes I feel the upper limit problem. Like, you know, everything goes well and then you just sabotage it instantly just because, just because I guess it is comfortable, right? Yeah. Also, um, not to pry or anything, but are you in your 20s or 30s or where are you in the developmental cycle? I am in my 30s. 30s. Okay. Well, that's actually perfect because in developmental psychology, we say your job in your 20s is to experiment, try mm -hmm. on different models of behavior, different models of relationship. Almost none of us 
end up being happily married for 50 years to our high school sweetheart. Except for you. You know, <laughs> maybe it was. <laughs> well, no, I didn't meet her until she was in graduate school. So okay. uh, <laughs> she was a little older than my high school sweetheart. We, we were both in our 30s. Anyway, um, we say in your 30s, you find your life. In your 40s, you build your life. And in your 50s, you enjoy your life from your 50s on. That's wow, the ideal situation. <laughs> uh, well, that's the thing. You got to start enjoying the process now. You know, not just wait until you have it all lined up in a row and have made all your money and live in your dream house and everything to develop happiness as a way of going about things rather than a reward at the end of things. Mm -hmm. And so, but in your 30s now, um, Natalia, your job is to really find your life, to find the places where you don't love yourself and get busy on loving those and find old incompletions. You know, in my 30s, I made a, started making a list of incompletions, like people I was grateful to, but had never told that to. Mm -hmm. And so I started just taking care of incompletions, writing people letters, appreciating them, calling people. One guy I owed $160 to that I'd completely spaced out. I had to actually kind of do some detective work to track him down. And I finally found him. He was living in a room in a YMCA in New Hampshire. He was on top of the world when I knew him. He had a Cadillac and everything, which is how I ended up coming to borrow $160 from him. <laughs> to get my rusty old VW bus uh, repaired. Um, but I found him and I paid him back. And oh man, what a liberation that caused and what a reward I got from him because I got this letter of gratitude for thank you so much for, mm -hmm. because I need, I could really use $160, you know? So yeah. it came along at the right time. And you never know What's going to do it for people? Another man that I felt great gratitude for, J. Wallace Hamilton. I had read his books and listened to him speak when I was a sophomore in high school. He was a Methodist minister at a church in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, down where I grew up. Um, and I was so grateful to him, but I, he died before I ever got to meet him in person. And so... I found his widow many years later who was still alive and I was able to communicate my gratitude to him and for her because they were a couple of these couples that were married for 50 years. And here's the thing. She was in her 80s when I got hold of her finally and expressed this. And she, I got this beautiful message back from her that said, you can't believe what your message meant to me. She said, you know, I'm sitting here now in a retirement home and, you know, Wallace has been dead now for 30 years and I'm just trying to figure out if my life made any difference. Or not. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, for Such saying. a beautiful thing. Such a beautiful thing to have those moments, Feelings. you know, and that's what makes a life is those moments of connection like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you and I'm I'm listening to you and I'm like, I also have some tears coming up because I also feel that 
I've been so grateful to you for all your books and work, and it has led me to where I am now, partially because of you. And I'm so grateful that I have this chance of speaking to you right now. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Of course. And um, also wanted to note that um, even in my business school experience, we um, we talked a lot about the importance of gratitude. And I have this. I had this professor. I'm not sure if you happen to know him, Dan Cable. I've heard the name. Anyways, so he he teaches a lot about gratitude, and uh, now this is a, a tool that I took to my coaching practice. I actually ask my clients to write letters of gratitude, and that creates uh, an amazing impact. So much relief, so so much gratitude. Coming back a little bit to to the big leap, right? You defined four zones of functioning. Zone of incompetence, competence, excellence, and genius. And uh, you basically show how different your life can be if you work and live out of the zone of genius. So could you explain what does it mean to live in the zone of genius? Two things. It means that you are living every day doing things that you most love to do and things that make your biggest contribution to the world around you, your family, your friends, your community, the larger world that we live in. So there's, I say there's two prongs to genius. One is finding out what you most love to do and spending more and more of your time doing that. And also always living in a question of, is what I'm doing having a positive impact on people's lives is what I'm doing, making my family happier and more secure. So when you find that confluence of two things in your life, that's what I call living in your genius. And I started focusing on that in 1984, somewhere around there. And I realized I was only spending 10% of my time in my genius zone. And so I started doing more and more, just a little bit at a time. And so by the end of the century, I was only doing things that I love to do and things that make a big contribution to people's lives. You know, Mm -hmm. it took me six or eight months to write The Big Leap. But now I know that, you know, several million people have read it and it's made a difference in their lives. So what a great investment of time if you're going to spend six months or a year of your life doing something to do something that has a ripple effect. Not everybody's going to write books or compose a symphony or anything, but what you can do can make a difference to your family, your community, to the world around you. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. It was really powerful and inspiring and and super beautiful. I am so grateful once again that I have had this opportunity to talk to you and I wish you best of luck in everything you do in your health and in your continuous journey of helping people like us to live life with fulfillment. Yes, if you do what you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. I haven't worked a day in so many years, I can't even remember what work feels like. Yeah, that's the feeling. That's the ideal state that we want to reach. And I hope everyone who listens to that does it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natalia. Great being with you. 